Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Christ is the Final Prophet, Christian is not what you do, it's who you are, Christian slavery, Christ-righteous, not self-righteous, and do unto others. Enjoy. You know, there's one profession from the Bible that you don't see so much anymore, and this is the, the role or the office of the prophet. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of people who claim to be prophets these days, and if they're claiming to be a prophet, chances are they're up to some mischief, or maybe they're confused if you want to be charitable. More than likely, they're after your money, or at least your praise and adoration. You know, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he was spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, by this text, we know that there are no modern-day prophets. There are no people who God has specifically appointed and designated to the role of prophet, like he did with Moses or Jonah or... Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of these people in the Old Testament, that role doesn't exist anymore. The office of prophet is closed. Now, the text that we had for this last Sunday from Deuteronomy and from John talked about the prophet. There's a specific prophet, and Moses points forward to it, and John and the and the, uh, the, the goons, the lackeys of the Pharisees talk about this prophet a little bit. What are they talking about? Let's get into it. One thing that's common with all prophets throughout the entire Bible, all prophets is that they all point to Christ. They're always talking about Christ, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Even in the case of Jonah, where Jonah is told to go and tell the people of Nineveh to repent, he's ultimately talking about the gospel because he knows that they'll be saved by the gospel. And the gospel is Christ, Christ dying for people. Now, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Moses is, is, is recording, well, his words are God's words because he's a prophet. That's what, that's what prophets do. They speak God's word. Moses is telling people, this. He says, I will raise up a prophet. Well, God is telling people, I will raise up a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is God through Moses telling the people that there is going to be a prophet, singular. There's going to be a specific prophet who's going to fulfill a specific specific task, uh, you know, a specific set of parameters. Again, after Moses come a plethora of prophets, like Elijah, Daniel, Malachi. But Moses is talking, well, God is talking through Moses about a specific prophet, a the prophet, if you will. Now, this is important because later on, the Pharisees, and of course, you know, the people who understood the Old Testament, who remember these, these, um, these promises of a prophet, uh, they ask questions about a specific prophet that they confront John the baptizer. Now, let's fast forward a few thousand years to that confrontation. They, they confront John the baptizer. 
uh, and they're asking him, who are you? These are the, 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 uh, the priests and the Levites that the Pharisees sent. They go to John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, and they say, who are you? Now, John the Baptizer, he's a good prophet. He's, he, he's a proper prophet, if you will. God actually chose him to deliver message, well, a message or messages, the gospel. God told him to deliver the law and the gospel, you know, repent and, uh, and be baptized. God specifically chose him for this task, and these Pharisees, well, not, you know, whatever. The Pharisees, goons, whatever. These goons come up to John the Baptizer, and they want him to talk about himself, and John the Baptizer is only interested in talking about, shocker, the Christ, Jesus. Again, this is what all the prophets throughout all time have been talking about. They've been talking about the gospel, the law and the gospel, Jesus. They've been talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, depending on if you prefer Greek or Hebrew. Now, they come and they ask John the baptizer, they say, who are you, who are you, who are you? He confessed, this is what the text says, this is from John, uh, uh, he says, he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now they ask him three things. Are you, uh, well, there's three titles that are, that are in this section. The Christ, which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. Obviously that's Jesus, right? Um, then they say, what then are you Elijah? Now they're asking, because he, he's dressed in his camel camel skin and his, and his big leather belt. He looks like Elijah. And later on, Jesus will talk to him and say that John the Baptist, will talk about him and say that John the Baptizer was the Elijah. Um, now they're not, they don't mean the same thing. These people are asking him, they're thinking about Elijah as kind of the reincarnation. Well, not reincarnation because Elijah was carried up into heaven in the fiery chariot. Um, if this is the return of Elijah, that Elijah, that one who was carried up in the fiery chariot, and, and John says no. Jesus later on says that, well, I mean, Elijah is a prefigurement. He is a, a type or a shadow of John the baptizer. Elijah came before John, but John had a greater task than Elijah. Even as cool as Elijah's stories are, um, there, you know, the Bible says, I believe there was none born of woman greater than, greater than John. John had a very specific, a very important task to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Christ, for the Messiah. So he is not Elijah. He is the anti-type of Elijah. Um, Elijah is the prefigurement of, of, uh, John the baptizer, but he is not Elijah who's come back down to earth. He is not the Christ the Messiah himself. And they say, are you the prophet? Now, again, the prophet um, understood is not, it's not just a prophet. He's, they're not saying, are you a prophet? Yes, John was a prophet. He was told by God to convey a specific message to spe specific people. That's what prophets do. They speak God's word to specific people. Are you the prophet? And the answer is no, he's not. He's not the prophet. Now again, we recall the uh, the message from uh, from uh, from Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about a prophet or the prophet, a specific prophet, uh, and and John is saying that's not me, that's not me. John is not the prophet, the final prophet. Sorry, spoiler alert, the final prophet. Okay, so he's only answering these one word sentences. They desperately want him to talk about himself. If you know anything about false prophets, you know they like talking about one of three things. They like talking about how important and how powerful they are, how special they are, how important, how powerful, how special you are, and how wonderful your life is supposed to be if you just have faith. Now, 
John is not talking about these things. He's not following the code of how to make money as a false prophet. John's a proper prophet. He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the gospel, the law and the gospel. So they're trying to get him to talk about himself, and it's like pulling teeth with this guy. It's like he doesn't want the spotlight. It's like he's preparing a way for someone else. Like he wants to diminish so someone else should increase. Anyways, the reading from John continues like this. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, John the baptizer, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they're trying to get him to talk about himself. And what does he do after they push him far enough? He goes and quotes scripture. He quotes another prophet. He talks about the Bible. He talks about Scripture. Again, they're trying to get him to talk about himself. No, John John knows what he's doing. John is talking about Christ. He's talking about Scripture. He's talking about the law and the gospel the whole time because he's a proper prophet. Now, if you knew the Pharisees, if you knew some things about the Pharisees, at the time, you would know the Pharisees, those are the good guys, right? And you know they're the good guys because they do all the right things, they follow all the right practices, and they do it so everybody can see. They were very showy about their, about their praying on the street corners and, you know, and the, these repetitions of prayer and these special hand walks. Even these traditions that they invented to make themselves, in their own eyes, to make themselves more holy, even these things they would do publicly. They would, they would tithe even their spices, you know, the, the, the mint leaves and thyme and basil and whatever other spices they had at the time. They were publicly known for being the good guys. They were doing the right thing. And this John the Baptizer guy, he's, he's not talking about himself. He's not telling people how great they are. He's not telling people they're going to have a wonderful life. What kind of a false prophet is this guy? And most of all, he's not making a big show about these things. They're frustrated. They're saying, you know, who is this religious celebrity who's not acting like a religious celebrity, a false prophet, would act? Again, he quotes scripture when they, when they, when they, when they finally get him to talk about himself. Because he's pointing to Christ. That's what prophets do. They point to Christ. They speak the word that God gives them to the people that God sends them. And that word is the law and the gospel. Now, who is the prophet. Again, think Moses is talking about a singular prophet. All the prophets are pointing forward to Christ. Hebrews 1 comes back to mind. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. These prophets are all pointing forward to Christ. The terminus, the the, the telos, the end state of their message is Christ. Christ, Jesus, comes to the world born of Mary, in the manger, lives a perfect life, lives an obedient life, lives a righteous life, dies, and comes back three days later. In addition to doing these things, he fulfills a threefold office, you'll hear sometimes, of prophet, priest, and king. Remember, a prophet speaks the words of God. Who better to speak the words of God than God himself? In Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing these people for a prophet who will speak the words of God. The words of the Father will be in his mouth. Shocker, the Son speaks the words of the Father. I and the Father are one. He may have said at some point. 
Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of a prophet. Every prophet points forward to Jesus, not only in their, in their act of, uh, of proclaiming the law and the gospel and in talking about the Savior to, to come, but in also their job itself. Jesus perfectly does what every prophet hopes to do. They speak the words God gives them. He speaks the words of God himself. They talk about the word of God. He is the word of God. They talk about the Messiah. He is the Messiah. They talk about the salvation of the world. He is the salvation of the world. It's this, it's this perfect, perfect encapsulation of, of a prophet. All of these other prophets, even John the baptizer, even Moses and Elijah, all of these prophets could only do a fraction of what the final prophet could do. They could only point forward as a type, as a shadow, as, as, as a lesser form of this ultimate prophet who is Jesus Christ. So it's really cool that you have these Old Testament prophecies about this final prophet who will come and all of the prophets talk about Christ and then Christ is the final prophet. Isn't it cool how things all get tied up like that? Jesus, the final prophet, comes, speaks, and acts the word of God, lives and dies for your sin so that you may be forgiven. And as he rises three days later, you are also guaranteed that same resurrection bodily on the last day and in heaven if you die before then. All you have to do is have faith repent and believe. I hope you are having a wonderful Advent. It's good to see you again. You take care. God, good. Sin, bad. Now that we understand that, here's a question for you. When we sin, when we do something bad, God's response, what he did was die on the cross for our sins. He responded with forgiveness. He responded with grace, giving us something we don't deserve, and mercy, not giving us what we do deserve. Grace and mercy are good things, so is forgiveness. But we never would have gotten these things had we not sinned in the first place. So follow this logic. If we sin more, God gives us more blessings. Right? Well, smash that subscribe button. Get ready to spam this annoying video on Facebook, Discord, and everywhere else. And let's get into it. Chapter 6 starts off with this, with this idea that Paul is addressing. This idea that more sin means more forgiveness, means more blessing. Therefore, we should sin more so we get more of God's blessings. Now, obviously we know that sin is bad, but what's interesting is that Paul doesn't respond to this, uh, this train of logic with, all right, just stop sinning because, you know, 
if you sin enough, then you won't be a Christian. If you sin enough, then God's going to get tired of you and stop forgiving you. God's going to stop loving you. He doesn't respond to this, this statement that seems to be talking about doing actions to receive benefits with a command to do you know, certain actions. But instead of talking about what you should do as a Christian, what the Romans should do as Christians, is he talks about their identity. He says, no, no, absolutely not. You should not keep, you should not try to uh, do this thing where you keep sinning so that grace may abound. No, how can you, who is dead in sin and alive in Christ, how can you, who is now a Christian, how can you continue to live as a non-believer? How can you continue to behave as a non-believer? It's interesting that he pins this all in identity. We like thinking about identity. A person's identity can be, you know, where they're born or what their favorite, you know, football team is or are they a boy? Are they a girl, a man or a woman, a husband, a wife, a daughter, a child, a, an employer, an employee? Your, your, your identity is made up of all sorts of different components. But Paul says here that your core identity, the foundation of who you are, is a Christian. And everything else is based on that. So your actions should reflect your identity. Your actions should be derived from your identity. It's not that your actions lead to your identity. You did not avoid sin for long enough, for example, or you did not give enough to the poor and then this turned you into a Christian. You're not a Christian because you did good things. You do good things because you're a Christian. There's a certain way that Christians should hold themselves, they should behave and speak, interact with one another and just kind of engage in daily life. And this is based on their identity of who they are as Christians. And this isn't what they've done, but this is what Christ has done for you that makes you a Christian. Your identity as a Christian. And Paul gets into this in, in this chapter. He talks about your former identity, your old self. You were a slave to sin and a slave to death, he talks about. You were formerly a slave to sin. That was your identity. That was your value in life. That was your master. That was who you served. You served sin. You were dead in sin, as he says elsewhere. You were a slave to sin, but you're not anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. When Christ died on the cross, he took your sin with him. He took that, that old man, that old self of yours who was a slave to sin, and he put that to death on the cross alongside himself. So when Christ died on the cross for your sin, then he resurrected from the dead. Not only, not only did he die for you in your sin, but he also rose for you in your sin. And in your baptism, you were baptized into his death and into his life. You put on the name of Christ as well as the deeds of Christ. The righteousness of Christ was placed on you. You had God's name put on you, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit you're baptized. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was placed on you. You got a new identity as a Christian. You got a new identity as someone who was saved by God. Someone who Christ died for. Someone whose sins were paid for. Someone who no longer lives as a slave to sin. So that's your identity. A Christian. Being a Christian is not, it's not what you do. It's who you are. Now what you do should reflect who you are. If you're a Christian, then act like it. I talk about it like this in the sermon this morning. I said, 
whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're not a Republican or a Democrat who happens to be a Christian. You can be a Republican or Democrat because you're a Christian. When you're a father or a son, a husband or a wife, or a mother or a daughter, you are not a, a, a mother who happens to be a Christian. You are a Christian who happens to be a mother. Being a mother, that part of your identity, that thing that you do, that, that, that relation that you have with others is based on the foundation of who you are in Christ. It is not about what you do, it is about who you are. And who you are is based on what Christ has done for you. It's this fantastic thing where God has already done the work necessary for your salvation. And now you get to enjoy the benefits, the credit of that account, the credit to that account of Christ's death on the cross. It's credited to you as a Christian. So rejoice, Christian. Because everything that you do, everything you think and say, that should all be based on who you are. But who you are is already settled. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are a Christian. I hope you have a wonderful day. We talked about Romans chapter 6 today. We had an epistle from Romans chapter 6. We had one last week too. And Paul was talking about slavery. So fun fact, did you know that you're a slave? Yep, even as a Christian you're a slave. Even if you don't think you're a slave, you're a slave. But you are. So you know what to do. Smash that subscribe button. Start spamming this annoying video on all your friends' Facebook and Discord servers. And let's get into it. Romans chapter 6 continues with this conversation about slavery. Now, last week, it talked about being, being dead to sin and alive in Christ. But this week, it, the language used is more about slavery. And the idea is this, that you were a slave to sin, and through the death of Christ, you became a slave to righteousness, a slave to God. Well, slavery is a bad word in my country. Slavery brings up memories or historical realities of abuses of human rights. There were certain citizens in the United States who abused other people through, through slavery. They took people and treated them as less than human. They treated them as property, as animals. And it was a horrible, sinful thing that these people did. And hopefully they repented of it. And those that didn't were condemned for it. Now. With the exception of Adam's sin, no sin is inherited. You don't inherit the sin of slavery from even direct relatives of yours, let alone other citizens who lived in your nation. But the history of the United States is still stained with that, with that low point where we were struggling to, 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 give, to give people the proper respect that they deserve, the proper human dignity that they deserve. So with this in mind, it's not, going to be, it's not going to be possible to reclaim the word slave. I don't think it's worth necessarily trying either. 
There's too much semantic baggage attached to it, for good reason. But a slave, a slave and a master, this describes a relationship. Whatever you think about it, it is a relationship. It is how one person relates to another. Other examples of relationships like that are father and son, or commander and a soldier, or employer and employee. There's a spectrum, in fact, of relationships. And where you are on that spectrum is, is based on how much authority you have over your own life and how much authority others have over your life. So on one side of the spectrum, you're a complete individual. And you stand alone, you're not related to anybody, you're not accountable to anybody, you have no obligations and nobody can tell you nothing. And you continue down the spectrum and you're an employee. And your employer can tell you what to do in regards to the job, but he has to pay you and he doesn't control your life. You go home at the end of the day. Continue on down the line. You're in the military. Sucks to be you. <laughs> but you're a soldier and your commander essentially can control many aspects of your life, but you still get paid for your work. Take another step down that line. You're a son or a daughter. Your parents have total authority over your life. They tell you to scrub under your fingernails, behind your ears, eat your green beans and broccoli. You don't get a choice in the matter. But the thing is, not only do they have total authority over your life as children, but they have a total responsibility to take care of you as well, to, to care for your well-being. In fact, part of the parent-child relationship has historically been inheritance. Now, let's get to the extreme end of that spectrum. Master and slave, mastery and slavery. This is the case where, like, like a father and a son, the slave has no control over his life, really. The master controls every aspect of the slave's life. But unlike the father, the, the master has no obligation to protect and take care of or provide an inheritance. So this is the extreme end of the relationships. One extreme being a total individual who's accountable to nobody. The other extreme being somebody who is completely controlled by somebody else. Every aspect of their life is owned by somebody else. So with this understanding of slavery in mind, it's interesting that Paul uses the term slaves to describe the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that we have with sin or that we had with sin in the past. Now, when you were a slave to sin, sin was your master. Your identity came from your master and what your master did. You weren't compensated for your work when you were a slave to sin. As a slave, you didn't get paid. I mean, you could sin as hard as you want to, but you weren't let's say positively compensated. You weren't given, you know, you couldn't sin hard enough and then sin would reward you with eternal life. But the opposite is the reality for someone who's a, who's a slave to Christ, who's a slave to righteousness. The end of someone who is a slave to sin is death. But the end of someone who is a slave to righteousness is sanctification and eternal life. I think one of the most important verses in the Bible kind of sums this whole this whole concept up very neatly. Romans 6.23, I think it is. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's interesting that the contrast is between wages and a free gift. Now wages are usually something good that you want, but in the case of sin, wages just mean 
you get exactly what you, what you have coming. You get exactly what you deserve in regards to sin. But in Christ, you no longer get what you deserve. In fact, you're not an employee working for God. You are, you are well, you're a slave to God, but you're a slave who's received gifts that he hasn't earned. Your authority, your ultimate authority is God, but at the same time, you contribute nothing to your salvation, yet you receive it for free. Ultimately, this is, this is the best relationship that you can have, because if you were an employee of God, then your salvation would be contingent upon you fulfilling your work requirements. But the fact that you are a slave to God and a slave to righteousness means that there's no obligation, there's no, there's no level that you have to meet in order to, to, to earn that salvation. There's no amount of work that you have to do in order to get to that point where you're, you're, you're owed a compensation, you're owed a, a, a pension or a paycheck. No. Instead, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So without even being capable of earning a fraction of eternal life, you've been given it for free. And as a slave, this means that you have been put in a better position than any worker, any child, any soldier under the command of any king, commander, father, of any ruler in the world. You have a better position as somebody who is a slave, whose identity is not their own, but their identity is their master's, Christ. Their identity is their own, or not their own, their identity is is righteousness. The, the, the identity of their master is righteousness. It's their identity. And their reward isn't something that they've earned, but it's a free gift. So as a slave, you've been given eternal life for free. As a worker, they have to work hard to earn something that's not even as good. It's a, it, I mean, slavery, it's a bad word. It's a naughty word. It's a word that we don't like. And at the same time, God takes something, such an imbalance of authority, such a removal of identity and autonomy, and he turns it into a blessing. You are better as a slave of righteousness than the son of an emperor. And again, the Bible continues on with this elsewhere, that Though you are a slave and not a natural-born child of the family of God, you're still promised the inheritance that was won and earned by the death of Christ. You're a slave that has been adopted as a child. It's a wonderful thing to think about. I hope you had fun. I sure did. Are you holier than a Christian? Well, if you're not a Christian, then no, you're not. Are Christians holier than you? Well, yes and no. Don't you hate it when you get a vague answer like that? Good thing I'm going to explain it to you. Let's do it.
So if a non-believer is never holier than a Christian, but a Christian is or isn't holier than a non-believer, how does that even work? Well, in the sense of the Christian's own, own work, their own behavior, their own, let's use the term, self-righteousness, the Christian doesn't amount, doesn't amount to anything more holy than the unbeliever. On his own behavior, on his own works, on his own righteousness, a Christian is no more holy than an unbeliever. But a Christian doesn't rely on his own works, his own righteousness to be holy. A Christian is made holy by the Spirit of God, by their sins being washed away and faith being given. Their holiness is not their holiness. It's not self-righteousness, it's Christ-righteousness. This is what a Christian should understand. So when a Christian thinks about himself in comparison to a non-Christian or even to another Christian, they have to keep in mind that this righteousness, this holiness that does exist, does indeed exist in their life, is not a result of themselves, of their own flesh working. Not something that they can take credit for in themselves, but rather it's a gift from God. The epistle reading for today was Galatians 5, I think the last two verses of Galatians 5, and the beginning of Galatians chapter 6. And in this, Paul is, is telling the Galatians, is telling the Christian church, he's telling them at the very beginning, he says, do not be conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Says, do not become conceited, brothers, let us not become conceited. And this is something that he, he really gets into in the following verses in, in Galatians chapter 6. And the idea here is that it is possible for a Christian to look at all the good works happening in his life, and they are good works, and say, wow, these are my good works. I did these. I am holy, and become conceited. The accusation from the outside world, the secular world towards Christians is regularly, oh, you're self-righteous. Get off your high horse. You think you're better than me or something? The outside world, the non-believing world, it hates goodness. It absolutely loathes goodness. Because in the presence of goodness, you can see the absence of goodness. When you look at your works, when they look at your works and they compare them to their own works, they're frustrated because this Christian is doing good works and it's making them look bad. This is frustrating. Maybe not so much just because you're doing good works, but because you're doing better works than them, or because they're not doing good works. That's probably the most frustrating part. And the accusation often comes across that the Christian is only acting holy. The Christian is putting on a show. The, the, the Christian is not being holy. The Christian is just, is just being provocative. The Christian is just trying to put on put on a show of being good so they can make other, other people feel bad about themselves, that this is what the Christian is trying to do. Now, in some cases, there, there is some validity to it. In some cases, there are Christians, there are people who do good things to get noticed by others. Say, look at what a good person, what a good and holy and righteous person I am. Thank God that I am not like that unbeliever over there. There are some who are like that. But not every Christian is doing good works for these reasons. In fact, Christians most frequently do good works because they're motivated by love. They say, well, God has done good works for me, so I want to do good works for my neighbor. I want to behave in a certain way. I don't want to, you know, be, be a drunkard. I don't, I don't want to use 
you know, secular foul language, four-letter words and whatnot. I don't want to cheat on my wife. I don't want to, you know, list any number of common and acceptable sins in secular society. And the Christian abstains from these things. And it's not because they want to act holier than other people, but it's because they want to be holy. The Christian is accused of acting holier than thou. Holier than thou, which means that they that they are trying to act, that act as though they are holier than the other people. And it's true to a degree. Christians are trying to act. They are trying to behave holier than you. Christians are trying to behave holier than themselves, in fact. Christians are trying to be, behave as holy as God, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Thanks be to God that Christians are trying to be holy. Thanks be to God that they're trying. Now, granted, no Christian is perfect. No Christian can perfectly follow the law, perfectly be holy like his father is holy. But he tries because he wants to be righteous as his father is righteous. And he is counted as righteous because he is, is imputed with the, the righteousness of Christ who died on the cross for him. So back to the verse in Galatians, the verses in Galatians. The temptation can easily arise for the Christian to become conceited, to look at his own works and say, well, these works make me holy. No, the works don't make you holy. You are holy because God makes you holy. And then you do the works of the Spirit. You do the works in accordance with the Spirit because you are holy. They are an outgrowth of your holiness, not the reason you are holy. You do good works. You do holy works because you are holy. You are not holy because you do holy works. So do not be conceited provoking one another or being envious. So this can also be taken in the, in, in the sense of somebody, maybe a Christian who's looking at other Christians and is envious of, of their spirituality. They could be envious of perhaps the vocation that the other Christian is given. Maybe they're a single, a, a, a single mother or maybe they don't have any children at all and they're looking at other Christians and they're envious and they're saying, you know, God doesn't love me as much because he hasn't given me that life of, you know, the life of this mother, the life of this grandmother. Or they look at somebody like a pastor and they say, well, God hasn't given me that holy position of a pastor and I'm a lowly such and such. I do, you know, deliver the mail or I'm a police officer, or I'm a security guard or, you know, I flip burgers at Wendy's or something like that. And they're envious. They despise the vocation, the God-given, God-blessed, holy vocation of burger flipper at Wendy's that they can glorify God in this vocation. They despise the vocation God has given them because they are envious of a vocation or role that, somebody, that God has given to somebody else. And instead, they should be rejoicing. Thanks be to God that there are pastors out there and policemen and, and soldiers and postal workers and burger flippers. Not everybody does the exact same role, but God glorifies and makes holy these things that different Christians do. Mother or father, unemployed or employed retiree or, or somebody who's, you know, been working for only a few years. God blesses these things. Do not be envious of somebody else's spiritual vocation, what God has given them, uh, the path that God has given them to walk, walk by the Spirit. At the same time, don't be envious of their spiritual resilience, the, the, the resistance of, of sin. Don't be, don't be envious that they do not struggle with some certain sin that you struggle with daily. Thanks be to God that they don't struggle with that sin, but also, dear God, please forgive them for the sin that they do struggle with. 
You may not even see their sin, but I guarantee you that that person who has that spiritual resilience in, in the sin that bothers you is struggling with their own sin. They have the need of a, of a savior. They have the need of forgiveness just as much as you do, even if you don't know specifically what their sin is. So again, don't be envious that God, you know, God favors one person and allows them to be free from sin, whereas you have to struggle uh, every day with these, the same temptation. temptation. But thanks be to God that he's protecting them. He's giving them resilience from this sin. And thanks be to God that he's protecting you and giving you resilience from other sins. Dear God, please forgive them and forgive me. And don't think that because you don't struggle with the same sin that they do, that that's a reason that you should be conceited. Again, don't be conceited. Don't be envious. Don't provoke. Don't provoke one another. Instead, rejoice. Thank God. Trust in his forgiveness. Trust in the blood of your Savior. Trust in the source of your righteousness, not being within you, but being from God. Being from God's death on the cross imputed to you. Thanks be to God that he made you who you are. Thanks be to God that you were resilient to the sins that you are. Thanks be to God that others are made into the role that they have and they're resilient to the sins that they are. Build one another up. Bear one another's burdens. Don't, don't look at somebody else and say, well, your sin is above forgiving, but God died for my sin instead. No, work to redeem your, well, not redeem, but work to restore your brother and sister who sins. If they sin and they repent, forgive them, welcome them back in. If they don't repent, then encourage them to repent. You want them to rejoin the brothership, the brothership, the brotherhood, the fellowship of believers. Don't be conceited. Don't be envious. Don't provoke. But instead, love one another because Christ loved you first. At the end of the day, that's what it always comes down to. The death and resurrection of Christ and how that pays for your sin and how that pays for their sin and how that shows that God loves you, God loves them, and God loves the world. Encourage them in a way that they can enjoy these, these gifts of God. Do not be conceited. Do not provoke. Do not be envious. Be grateful. Be thankful. Be constantly in prayer. Be ready to forgive. And be in constant remembrance of the forgiveness that was given to you. Well, I hope that helps you, you holy people and you not holy people. And I hope you have a wonderful week. You take care. Be a Christian is to be persecuted for Christ. And we're told how we are supposed to behave and react to those who persecute us. So, pop quiz time. Which of the following is a command of Jesus? Do unto others as they have done unto you. Do unto others before they do unto you. Or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let's get into it. Jesus summarizes the Law and the Prophets with what we call the Golden Rule. It's recorded in, in the book of Matthew, 
says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But today we're actually studying Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, one of the portions, it talks about how, how Christians are supposed to respond to those who persecute them. It would be the easiest thing in the world for somebody who, who is persecuted, who is hated, to hate back in return. When someone does evil to you, to do evil in return. If somebody hurts their, hurts their feelings, well, why don't you hurt their face? That seems like, like the logical solution, right? If somebody hits you, you hit back twice as hard, so they learn their lesson. But here's the thing. A lot of the times when people do sin and do evil against you, they expect you. They expect you to hit back because when you do that you justify their anger you justify their sin instead what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 Paul writes this down is that you should bless those who persecute you not curse them not hate them not wish evil upon them but bless them in fact he goes through this list of things that you're supposed to do rather than the things that you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to repay evil with evil, for example. Overcome evil with good. He talks about feeding your enemies if they're hungry, or giving them something to drink if they're thirsty. Loving them, basically. <laughs> My favorite phrase is he says, by so doing, you heap burning coals on their head. How frustrating it is for the enemies of Christ and the enemies of Christians when they're doing everything they can to make you mad and to make you react and you respond in love and blessing and patience and all of these qualities of God. How frustrating. They just want to get a rise out of you because if they can make you mad, then they've justified themselves. They said, ha, ha, ha. You see, I knew it. I knew this Christian was a violent one. I knew this Christian was just as evil as I am. So I am justified in doing evil to him because he did evil right back to me. But no, it's actually better to repay evil with good. You're supposed to bless people, but not just people you get along with, the people who, who hate you, people who persecute you, who want you to die. This can be a, a frustrating concept because that's not how you win a fight. That's not how you win an argument. But the fight isn't yours to win. In this verse, in these verses in Romans chapter 12, it talks about not taking out vengeance, not getting revenge, taking vengeance on, on the people who've done evil to you, but rather that vengeance belongs to God. God says that he will repay. So to love your enemies instead is to trust that God is handling the vengeance part. After all, who do you think can hit harder, you or God? But Vengeance is God's. This, he's the judge. He's not only the one who declares someone guilty or not guilty, but he's also the one that carries out the punishment. Well, what if the people get away with it? What if somebody sins against you and they get away with it? <laughs> That's where God comes in. Because somebody who sins against you is going to have one of two possible outcomes. Either their sin is going to be paid, the debt for their sin is going to be paid by their life as they die and go to hell, and burn and suffer for the sin of their lifetime. Or, and this is far better, that the, the, the debt, that the debt for their sin is paid by the death of Christ on the cross. After all, whose life is more valuable to pay a debt? Some miserable, rotten sinner who's persecuting you? Or the perfect, omnipotent Son of God, Jesus Christ himself? 
fully God and fully man, dies on the cross to pay for not just your sin, but the sins of your enemies. If you, if you have your, the, the debt against you, if that's paid by the blood of Christ, how many times, thousands and thousand fold, is this debt paid by this, by this God who died for their sin? It's far better than an enemy who persecutes you, not as defeated, not suffers vengeance, but becomes a brother or a sister, saved by the death of Christ, just like you were. Don't be conceited. Romans chapter 12 says this as well. Be humble. Don't be afraid to associate with the lowly and the sinful. Because remember, you were sinful as well. When Christ died for you, you were not on his side. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. Christ died for you. So your sins, and they are grave sins, have been forgiven. You weren't a good, noble, holy saint. And then Christ added a little extra on top of that. But Christ died for the, for the, for the, the rotten, sinful person that you actually were. And if Christ has died for your sins, how much more has he died for the sins of, of those who persecute you? The goal in any interaction between a Christian and a non-Christian is not to win an argument. It's not to win a fist fight or a holy war. The goal of the interactions between Christians and non-Christians is for the non-Christian to hear the gospel. For the non-Christian to hear the law that condemns his sin and the gospel that Christ died for that sin, paid for it, and redeemed him. And then for that non-Christian to become a Christian for the Holy Spirit to work with their heart, change their heart, replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a living heart, to repent, to be forgiven, and to be saved. So don't worry about vengeance. Don't worry about do unto others as they've done unto me, but do unto others as Christ has done unto you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. God loved you you would have other people love you. Love others. That's all I got for this week.